0: Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19 Critical Care, What Providers Need to Know. This is the June 5th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are providing twice weekly, 15-minute webcasts and podcasts, featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME or CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. Slides from today's presentation, as well as all previous presentations, can be found in the Resource Center. Today's learning objectives are, explain three challenges institutions faced when COVID-19 was first recognized, discuss two causes of the financial difficulties hospitals face today, and identify at least one priority for institutions going forward. Again, I'm very happy to introduce Sue Hansen, a clinical nurse specialist at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. This is the first part of Sue's series, Camp COVID, What Have We Learned So Far? Sue, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. And before we begin, I'd also like to thank the generous support of DKB Med, Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This is our second part, of two-part series of Camp COVID. For prior information regarding uh, the first part, it was taped earlier, and so you can reference the slides for further information. This second half, we're gonna talk about management of human resources, the impact on staff, the impact on post-acute care facilities, and going forward, what we have learned. So regarding human resources, I can't speak for other institutions, but this is, again, certainly how I think we all felt. We all felt like we were running every day and we were running out of time and we had to do more with less and do things by yesterday. It never stopped. It never stopped. It went on and on and on and on It never seemed like we were going to get any relief. But in terms of managing our resources, I think Our center in particular did a really great job in training people up and training people for different roles um, at the last minute. We got things in the place for redeployment. So for those staff members who maybe have been out of ICU or been out of bedside nursing for one to two years, we tapped into those folks, we provided training materials, we provided orientation so they can refresh their memory and get up to speed with caring for ICU patients again. Another thing that our institution was very fortunate enough to provide staff, because staff are working six, seven days a week, 12, 16 hours a day, is childcare. They have families, just like all of us, and they can't leave their children at home, and so. We do have a child care center associated with our facility, and we were able to provide extended hours of child care, reduced child care for a lot of our staff. In addition, one of the things that we were able to provide for staff is counseling and wellness resources for them. It was a huge impact on staff emotionally and physically. Again, we we're fortunate to provide those resources to staff, but I think going forward, And one of the things we're learning now is that, you know, once you get over the height of the COVID-19 surge and the census starts to drop and your adrenaline starts to drop and things are starting to slow down, that's frequently when people start to think about all that's happened over the last three months. And I think we're now just seeing that in staff and it's just, we're starting to see the toll it takes on their mental health. And I think one of the things that would be really beneficial if institutions can do that and they're able to provide these wellness services and these counseling services to staff is to please continue those services, even though we're seeing COVID-19 census go down, even though we're starting to ramp up our routine operations, staff need this, all staff, not just frontline staff, because we're starting to see lasting effects for the people who cared for these patients. And it's one thing to come out on the other side and have great numbers in terms of mortality for our COVID-19 population. But at what price is that if your staff cannot recover as well and they don't get the services that they need to become healthy again? Because again, it has taken a huge toll. Infection, prevention, and control. I'm not going to go too deep into this, because all of COVID-19, I think you can sum up under infection, prevention, and control, but some of the things I would like to highlight are negative flow rooms. We did have some negative flow rooms, so we had to turn more rooms into negative flow rooms. That was a huge engineering feat on the part of our Department of Engineering, of course, and how they did that in, they pretty much did that in less than a week. Some of us foolishly thought that even though we had negative flow in some departments, that it could just be turned on with a switch and and that's not necessarily the case. And we also didn't take into consideration the negative flow rooms and the impact on the energy sources in certain wings of the hospital. Going forward, I think if, if your institution has the resources to make every room a negative flow room, that of course would be great. But certainly having more negative flow rooms than a handful is absolutely absolutely a need especially during these times where we have these emerging infections that we don't know what they are we don't know how they're transmitted and it's going to take months to figure out how they are transmitted so we certainly do need more negative flow rooms planning forward cohorting patients this again was a challenge we figured out protocols regarding what's the criteria to cohort patients, but our protocols for cleaning those cohorted rooms and supporting staff enough to clean those rooms was not sufficient. I think we have now to the point where we've done extra training, we've done extra supportive measures with EVS staff regarding cleaning rooms. One of the ways that I know I had to talk to staff uh, to go into clean rooms is that I had to go in with them. There's a lot of fear. And so when they see someone else doing it alongside them, they feel supported, they feel less scared. But again, I think we can improve on our protocols on cohorting patients and cleaning the rooms. I think we've done a great job on donning and doffing circuits, meaning outlining a specific area and where to remove and put on the specific PPE. I think one of the areas that was challenging is moving to extended or reuse of PPE, especially when we change the protocols back and forth so quickly, depending on how much supply we had, this creates a lot of uneasiness for staff. So I think we learned to give more information to staff as to why we are doing this, being more transparent as to why we are doing this. That was very, very helpful. Clustering care. I think this is one thing that we got right from the beginning as well is how do we provide safe care with as minimum of time being exposed for staff as possible. I think staff got really creative in collaborating with respiratory therapy, collaborating with other nurses, especially in cohorted rooms, on sharing the care so as to minimize staff going into a patient's room. And lastly, fomites. Towards the end, everything's a fomite. We constantly wiped everything down to the point of where we were coming upon shortages of antiseptic wipes. We didn't, but we were very close. But you know, in the end, it's just like the same analogy of assuming everybody is COVID positive. Assume everything is a fomite, treat it as such, wipe it down as such, when in doubt, hand hygiene. And in the end, it all comes down to the four basic things that I think we've been teaching everybody from beginning. Um, if you're sick, stay home. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. If you forget, you can't remember. If you gel, gel again. If you're sneezing or coughing, sneeze into your elbow, and always wear a mask if you're within six feet of people. We now have universal masking in our facility. Our state has gone to universal masking in public, especially if you're within six feet of people. A lot of stores require it upon entry. So I think we found good results. In the tried and true and just stick to those four pieces of infection control and i think um, we'll all come out on the other side of better in the end testing this is one area where we not only as an institution i think as a country learned a huge lesson when this first started rolling out uh, we were reliant on the state for tests we were reliant on the cdc for tests those were in single digits we could not test everybody quickly enough Again, we are fortunate enough to be associated with the university with a lot of smart people and they developed their own PCR virology test. We were able to expand the virology lab to not only five days a week, nine to five, to seven days a week, 24 seven, expand the actual footprint of the lab, hire new people to do the lab. And currently we run anywhere from 1500 to 2000 tests a day now. Uh, Another thing that we learned is that It's not only important enough to have enough tests, what's important is for patient throughput, especially and also those pre-procedure tests and those discharge challenges is to test rapidly. So we were able to acquire a rapid test with a turnaround time of two hours. With both a rapid test and a long test, we can swab patients in a variety of ways, but this helped us facilitate patient throughputs and patient placements in a more rapid fashion. I think going forward, you know, it's not enough just to test. I think we need to provide testing where it's free for all. This is just my personal opinion. If we allow cost to be a constraint, then we will never get a handle on how widespread this disease is or could be. We'll never get a handle on the populations involved. We'll never get a handle on adequately treating these patients and we shouldn't have to rely on large centers like ourselves. We're fortunate. Um, we shouldn't have to have everybody else rely on that. There should be testing everywhere and have some adequate access for everywhere, for all people, because again, we're just not gonna be able to get a handle on the disease. Another thing that has come up and is gaining steam is serology testing. I think there are some concerns about serology testing, but I also think there are some benefits for serology testing in terms of surveillance. It will not only allow us to get a bigger picture on who has been exposed, what type of populations, um, it could help us with contact tracing, but it could potentially help us with donating convalescent plasma for those patients who are really, really sick in the hospital. Again, 80% of the patients are asymptomatic. So I think there's a, the ability to rely upon those patients for donation if they're willing in the future and it works out to be so. That seems to be one of the promising treatments. And so if we can have a greater understanding of what that donor pool would be, I think that would help patients who are critically ill in the hospital. Financial recovery, I think for countries as a whole and for institutions, it's gonna take a long time. There's a great deal of revenue loss due to cancellation of elective services In outpatient services. I think ophthalmology is one of those areas that was hardest hit, up to 78% of their services saw a decline, as well as there were increased costs for COVID care. Taking care of COVID-19 patients is more costly, especially in the ICU setting. Again, the majority of patients, close to 100%, are on a ventilator, they're on the ventilator longer, they're in the ICU longer. A lot of them need extended critical care with um, high-tech machines such as ECMO or CRT. A lot of the costs went to again testing, you know, we developed one of the PCR tests here, but we also had to provide tests for all those patients who came to us uh, and and needed it. They don't have them in the community and they're certainly not free and the CDC didn't have enough. Um, I think the country is, of course, ramping up their stockpile, but Over the last three months, you know, we had to provide that and as well as other centers had to do that as well. I think Going forward, institutions are not only going to have to find a way to financially recover, but they're going to have to factor in planning for the surge and keeping their normal operations open at the same time. How do we carefully care for these COVID-19 patients? How do we keep the other patients safe? How do we keep our staff safe? How are we going to find enough uh, space? How are we going to store enough PPE? how we're going to keep costs down, we're going to have to do it all at the same time. We're not going to be able to shut down uh, normal operations like we did before, because we're already seeing institutions closing because of it, institutions having to resort to furloughing staff because of it. And so hopefully the majority institutions will be able to factor in that planning for when the next pandemic happens or the next surge of COVID-19 happens. Again, with regards to financial recovery, I think having financial transparency, I think people understand, healthcare workers understand, public understands better if they have information. It doesn't have to be information to understand. You don't have to use fancy data to explain why healthcare institutions are now broke or they're in dire straits, there are millions of dollars in debt. But I do think there's greater understanding among staff and why changes need to take place in order to recover financially is much more helpful than no information at all. I think that also that if we can plan for a new collaboration, again, with other facilities in our area, even if you're not part of a system that has four and five and six campuses, you can still collaborate with other institutions to share data, to share equipment and supplies in order to Uh, lessen the financial burden I think as well that telehealth has well it's gained in not just a popularity it's gained a necessity during COVID-19 I think we're going to see that expand and continue on I don't think that's going to go away I think also we need to treat people where they're at and when I'm speaking this I'm thinking of extended care facilities in the homeless population we need to support the public community in testing and housing in order to take the burden off these acute care facilities. We need to support our skilled nursing facilities, training them, providing adequate PPE for them, paying their workers a livable wage in order to provide better care for their residents in their own facility. So they don't have to come to acute care facilities, so they don't have to see the outbreaks that they saw in the beginning. It was an enormous burden on their part. Again, I, I speak of ideas, I don't have all the answers, but this is just my one opinion on what would be beneficial. And of course, revenue improvements. Uh, this is maintaining the operations slowly. Our institution has started outpatient elective procedures again and We're kind of wrapping up slowly week by week by week in order to ensure we keep those patients safe. uh, We keep our current patient population safe. We are able to keep throughput moving. We are able to discharge patients in a timely manner as much as possible. But again, uh, the intent is to get back up to capacity of 90, 95% where we were before this pandemic hit, not where we were just two weeks ago at 50 and 60%. That is a necessity. Hospitals still need to keep the lights on. So I think going forward, they're going to need to, again, incorporate normal operations with pandemic operations, if you will, for lack of a better term. Post-acute care. I can't highlight this enough. Being a safety net hospital, our vulnerable populations, as you see everywhere, homelessness, unsheltered, extended care facilities, nursing homes, group care settings, took a huge hit in terms of incident rates and mortality rates, um, well before we ever really realized the scope of the pandemic itself. I think going forward, we need to have public health places where the homeless, adequate places where the homeless can shelter in place, processes in place in these homeless COVID-19 locations where we can keep the homeless for 14 days. You know, it's one thing to have a couple of facilities or pop-up locations, but it's another thing getting the, the homeless to stay. Many of them have mental illness. Many of them have addictions and they don't want to stay. And so what we can't have is having them go out into the greater population and spread that disease among many for which we can't do contract tracing on because it's just too many. I also think that it's important to expand our home care services. Can those who are sick with the early symptoms of the disease get care at home? Can we reach out to medical supply companies, oxygen supply companies, and support them in a better manners. So patients can be cared for at home, they can recover at home, and they don't get to the point where they need to come to an acute care facility and then end up critically ill, intubated, and then uh, sometimes die. I also think there needs to be a focus on our incarcerated population. Prisons and detainment centers are grossly overcrowded. There's, as it stands now, there's just no way to adequately isolate patients who are incarcerated. In addition, uh, when we have to care for patients in our hospital who are incarcerated, they have, maybe they had COVID-19, maybe they're doing fine, but they still test positive, or now they te- tested negative, they converted, but what is the process for them transferring back to that type of a community? Do they need to have a test done before they transfer back to the community? Are certain prisons and places of incarceration, do they do their own testing? My guess is no. And even if they did know their inmates were positive, again, how to isolate them. So I think this is another area that needs a lot of work in order to maintain the safety of everyone. A little more on long-term care facilities. We know that this population took a toll, a great toll, not only on, on the residents, but on the staff who work there as well. Uh, this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, this is state by state. And as you can see at the very end with 38 states reporting, the mortality rate in this population is about 42%. That's horrible that there's such great disparity in, in the death and some of those we could have prevented if we would have known better at how much our long-term, long-term care facilities are so inadequately supported as they are now. So hopefully that will change. Post-acute care transition plan. I think this would be helpful, uh, working with your local and state leadership in order to plan for post-acute care transition and seeing all the difficulties that we had discharging our patients. Um, I think there needs to be readmission protocols for extended care facilities for. Patients, regardless whether or not they're positive, asymptomatic, or they're positive and negative, or they never were COVID positive, they're negative, and they they still don't want to accept their patients back. I think that expanding telehealth and healthcare at home is a good option. I think also inviting the idea of expanding hospice for some of these patients and allowing family members to be there uh, when their loved ones pass because that is something that all families should not have to go through is um, experiencing a loved one that dies from COVID-19 or whatever disease and they could not be there with them. Again, I also think that on the government level, public health historically has been grossly underfunded. There needs to be a greater focus on public health. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but as we can see, pandemics take way more lives in a much quicker fashion than any other disease out there. I also think that everyone should have the ability to get tested. This is the only way again that we're going to know what the true population of positives are out there, um, how to do the best contract tracing in order to mitigate these emerging infections that seem to be coming up more and more frequently over the past couple of years. Healthcare workers, this is one topic I guess I'm I'm most familiar with. Again, I'd like to include all healthcare workers, not just the frontline healthcare workers, administration, EDS staff, engineering, uh, clinical engineering, bioengineering, laboratory staff. This has taken a toll on everyone. Uh, One of the things I can say is that, and again, this is just my experience, but I'm sure other healthcare centers can speak to this as well, is that they are a group of people that are very, very adaptive. I think I tried to count the number of new protocols, revisions, adaptations to policies and procedures, and in three months it's well, over 300. And they've had to understand, implement safely all of those protocols, knowing that the next day they come into work, it's going to change again. They've had to be quick thinkers. Everyone turned to be, seemed to be very collaborative. In the first slide, I, I showed Camp COVID. And if you can imagine going camping with friends, but this seemed in some respects like the same atmosphere. They all became very, very good friends, uh, supportive of each other. There was just an underlying understanding of what the needs were, what everybody's going through without ever having to say anything. They also are enormously intelligent. These patients became very, very sick. They, some patients required very high-tech equipment to actually keep them alive and to support them, primarily meaning ECMO or CRT. Not everybody is trained on that, so we had to quickly train those staff members in place. And these are high-risk things, things we don't do very often, but staff stepped up to the plate. Again, we also saw that a lot of our staff, they could have gone to engineering school if they wanted to. We had to create a lot of things for a reuse of PPE, like I spoke with a couple weeks ago, as you can see the mask and that little Tupperware to uh, head positioning devices for when patients are prone. We relied heavily on clinical engineering to really build some things for us and build it quickly so we could deliver the care that we needed for our patients. And lastly, I think healthcare workers in general, and we always have known nurses to be, but I think all healthcare workers are altruistic. I cannot tell you how many people gave so much of their time to the institution and to these patients that they were never paid for. And I know they would do it again. That shows their commitment. That shows others, I think, outside the hospital, how committed they are. I always knew it because I always saw it every day. I just never saw it to this degree. I think because of their level of giving, for lack of a better term, also speaks to their resilience and how much they can be pushed and how long they can go. But in the end, you know, staff are human. They do have their point where they begin to get, get sick, either physically or mentally. And I think that's where we're really starting to see the crisis happen for us now. Caring for COVID-19 patients has taken a huge impact or healthcare workers have absorbed a huge impact caring for these COVID-19 patients. This top line up here speaks of two medical workers on the front lines in New York City committing suicide, I think about a month or so ago, and we're starting to hear more and more about that. In this country, there's a lot of literature reporting on that from Italy, from Spain, from China, and it just goes to show the enormity of the pressures that healthcare staff members had to absorb. I can't speak to certain circumstances for privacy issues and, and honoring that, but there's a lot of anxiety, depression, fear, hopelessness that are popping up. I think there's an element to lack of social support. You know, I can speak for myself that I don't think my family really understand what I do and what it takes. And now staff are facing furloughs in order to help the financial recovery of COVID-19. I think everything is beginning to take its toll on staff. And I think, again, I'm gonna highlight on how to support staff once COVID-19 slows down for your institution, maybe once COVID-19 is not in the headlines anymore and we've developed the vaccine, it's still going to be felt by all healthcare workers. Because again, you know, when you're in the thick of it and you're working seven days a week and the adrenaline's rushing and the pace, the pace is rapid, 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 you don't have time to think about these things. And now that the environment is slowing down, staff have time to think about it. And this is when we're starting to see the needs, the mental health needs for healthcare members. And so if your facility can extend that support, I highly encourage you to do so. So what's next? The best thing would be to plan for conventional, contingent, and crisis phases in all phases of emergency planning. So that's supply chain, that's capacity, that's infection control, resources, all the things we talked about last week and this week. I think we do need to plan for co-infections in the fall and the flu. I can only imagine what it's going to be like, especially for the elderly population and the homeless population. I am hopeful that funding for public health is going to increase, but historically speaking, it has not increased very much. Um, I know that's a very small picture of the CDC's budget for 2021, and if you can look near the arrows, the proposed budget for 2021 for public health and zoonotic infections are down millions of dollars. So that does not support the mission of improving public health among all communities. And lastly, I'm going to highlight this again, when you go to plan for your conventional contingent and your crisis phases, also incorporate recovery into those conventional contingent and crisis phases. So that pain is not also imparted upon acute care facilities as a whole. I think we need to support our community facilities in order to minimize the impact to Acute care facilities and staff and PPE and their overall mental wellness, because I can say firsthand that all of healthcare workers, they understand being furloughed. They understand the cost this took. Well, I'm not sure that they understand having to pay that cost again a second time due to insufficient planning. So I'm, I'm hopeful that those administrative leaders who do do the planning for the recovery in the next phases, they will incorporate contingency plans and crisis plans into the recovery as well so the impact is minimized on the back end when we see an ending to this particular pandemic. And that is all I have. I'm happy to
0: take questions. Thank you, Sue. For our learners, these are the references for some of the information Sue provided us with today. The slides will be available in our resource center. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Sue, first question. Has the procedure for running a code blue or performing CPR changed in the current circumstances?
1: Yes, that's a great question. It has dramatically and has changed about 10 times. Maybe 15. Running a code is pretty high risk, and the majority of patients, they need to be intubated. And so that's considered an AGP or an aerosol generating procedure. How do we do that? How do we provide this emergency care to our patients and protect our staff at the same time? So at in our institution, we created protocols where only the necessary number of people need to go into the room. Historically, everyone would show up to a code. There'd be 30 people in the room, 20 of which did not need to be there. So we have really cracked down on having the only necessary people in the room. So we have someone man the door and they strictly enforce only certain people should be in the room. We also developed what we call code blue boxes and inside those code blue boxes has all the PPE equipment for the people who need to be in the room. Right now I think we have five people in the room and that is it. And so if you run to a code and you did not bring a hood with you or you did not bring a clean in 95 which most people don't have because we're always on that seem like the crisis of the contingency stage of PPE, we had those necessary supplies in that code blue box ready to go on each unit of the hospital so you can just grab the appropriate PPE and go into the room. The rest of the code team will stay outside the room and we'll actually communicate by walkie-talkie or we'll put the phone that's in the room on speaker so we can communicate with the people outside the room. We would keep the defibrillator outside the room unless we absolutely needed it. We would keep the crash cart outside the room with pharmacy um, outside the room as well. We would have social work and other ancillary staff stay outside the room to take feedback from the code team inside the room and be able to hand off any supplies that they may need. Long story short or short story long, yes, um, our code blue process has changed dramatically. I think we have, for the most part, staff have, has gotten used to the new process. I think we assume anybody who we don't know the COVID status on, we assume them to be COVID positive, and everybody just dons their gear appropriately as if the patient was COVID positive. I think uh, going forward in the fall, if we should see a surge, which I'm sure we will, and it will probably be coupled with the flu, this process may change as well again. This is one of the things where we pretty much did right from the beginning, is limiting the number of staff that enter the room and still be able to provide that emergency care adequately to that patient.
0: Next question. From a patient safety perspective, do you think that hospitals should be performing non-emergent operations that require inpatient stays?
1: Yes, I do. I think we have, in in trying to do the right thing by our patients and by our staff, I think we have been overprotective and oversafe. And again, this is just my personal opinion. I think we've done a fabulous job in bringing on the rapid PCR testing that the turnaround time is two hours. This allows us to do pre-procedure testing for our patients um, to determine their COVID status. And to be quite honest, 99% of those are all COVID negative we have put our COVID-positive patients in certain areas or certain floors of the hospital on those floors where um, we have other non-COVID patients. We have done a great job in putting them on opposite areas of the floor. Um, Staff who take care of COVID patients do not take care of non-COVID patients. So I think it is very, very safe. And I think that because of COVID-19, people have avoided going to the doctor or avoided coming to the hospital, maybe a little bit uh, longer than they should have, and they're now seeing consequences of that. I think everyone should be feel very safe in having their non-urgent procedures done at facilities. I think that is one thing that we have really done a good job in protecting our staff and protecting our patients with our current processes that we have right now and what we have learned.
0: Thank you, Sue, for your contribution to the program. As a reminder to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa qa.dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. There you'll find information on the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Please be on the lookout for our next activity next Wednesday. We will send out an email when it becomes available. Again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Sue, for your contribution to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.